I'll just introduce myself first. I'm, the, um, I'm an automotive engineering student at uh, Oxford Brookes University. And um, I'm also the president of um, Oxford Burma Alliance. So this is our first event uh, that we are having in Oxford. Um, and we're so excited that we're having a great round table with um, Matt, Dan, and Karen with us. Um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring the Burmese community in Oxford and us, along with the academic community, bring them together and share their thoughts through the platform, their idea, experiences. And I think this is a great example for um, all of you to have a feel of how we are working. And, and we're also inviting everyone, whoever is interested in working with us, to uh, bring the issues, bring the very important issues in Burma to Oxford. Um, our panelists will be introducing ourselves and um, we'll, we'll get started. So I hope everyone will enjoy it. Okay, well, it, um, it falls to me to, to begin, and I'll introduce myself briefly and then and give a bit of an overview on, on what we're going to do here. My name is Matt Walton, and I'm the new Aung San Suu Kyi Fellow in Modern Burmese Studies here at St. Anthony's College. Um, and the Asian Studies Center at St. Anthony's is, is really happy to be kind of hosting an event like this with Oxford Burma Alliance. Uh, my position here is, is new and indicative of, I think, um, a lot of, of attention towards Burma across the university, um, in, in some cases sustained, in some cases sort of new or renewed. Uh, so we're really excited about that. I just want to mention one other thing, that there are some email list uh, sort of sign-up sheets outside. Uh, and we're sort of building up, obviously, a mail list of people who are interested in, in Burma events. And, and really keen, well, you know, one of the things that, that I think Dan, uh, sorry, that, that Bayan alluded to is that... There is a significant Burmese population in and around Oxford and in the UK, and I think that we'd like to um, be able to put together events that, that feel welcoming to people beyond the academic community as well. And so, um, you know, so, so today you're going to hear, uh, you know, kind of mixture of, of analysis and experiences and things like that. And, and one of the things that we might do that's a bit different is we're all going to talk for uh, about 12 minutes or so. And so that should leave us lots of time for, for question and answer. And, and usually in academic settings, everybody who asks a question wants to sort of give their own um, lecture as, as well. And, and usually we try to hustle them through that so they, they don't get a chance to do that. But, but I, I know that there are people from Myanmar here and also people who have maybe worked extensively in the country and, and with Burmese groups and Burmese people. And so feel free also to um, you know, share a few of those experience, we, experiences. We have essentially two or three of the main Burmese uh, ethnic groups represented today, but there are a lot more, um, you know, that we want to, to sort of fill out this picture. So as a, as a brief overview and introduction to um, sort of ethnic conflict and ethnic identity in, in Burma, Myanmar, you're going to hear probably both of those words today, uh, there's been this striking political transition over the last two years but different experiences of the benefits of those traditions. And some of that hinges on ethnicity, religion, geography, all these things. Today, in particular, we're going to be exploring ethnicity. Approximately 60% or so of the population are in the majority Burman group, 
Um, they're mostly populated near the, in the central areas, and then, then the other 40% are a range of different ethnic groups, um, at different numbers depending on who you believe. The government says 135, but um, there are also some that are unrecognized there and some that are split up into smaller groups. Uh, there's been on and off civil war, well, sort of consistent civil war in, in Burma since, in, since it got gained independence in 1948, and in the last few years, we've seen a lot of ceasefires across the country with various rebel ethnic groups um, and, and political ethnic groups, sorry, rebel political groups. And there's a lot of push towards a national ceasefire um, at the end of, of this month or next month. Um, but we want to sort of ask today, in the midst of, of all of this laudatory uh, sort of media attention about the political transition, what are the things that have changed? What are the things that have not changed? And what are the ways in which... Um, people of the not-majority ethnic group fit into these changes. And so what I think you'll hear today represents a broad understanding of the notion of conflict, right? these experiences of conflict. So we're not just looking at immediate physical or military violence, although that's def definitely a part of it. We're also looking at the persistent effects of living under conditions of conflict and of violence against culture, against traditions, against identity. So I want to say that most of what I'm going to talk about today is drawn from conversations and work with non-Burman uh, colleagues and friends and a whole lot of documentation by other people. And my contribution here is a theoretical framework that I believe helps to kind of clarify the dynamics of ethnicity and conflict um, in the country. This is, of course, just one possible framing, so I would invite any comments on it. And what I'm going to draw from today is work in a field called critical race studies, more prominent probably in the U.S., but it, it's dealing with an area called white privilege. And the idea of white privilege is that there, there's this set of unearned privileges that confer economic, political, social, psychological benefits on white people generally. Now, this is not a natural uh, occurrence, but it's the product of a particular set of historical circumstances. Bear with me, we're coming to the Burma part, I promise you. But, so, what's important about this framework is that it doesn't say that whites are always privileged, right? But in, there are some areas where only because of their skin color they have access to certain benefits in their daily lives. A scholar, Peggy McIntosh, has said that whites are taught to think of, of our lives as normal, as neutral. And because we see ourselves and our experiences as the norm, then we're generally also, not only do we have this privilege, we're also blind to it because we don't see the experiences that other people have. And what I want to suggest is that in Myanmar, Burmans, the majority ethnic group, enjoy a particular set of privileges based solely on their ethnicity. Now, I think this is very different from what we, this is a different way to frame what we've often heard of as Burman chauvinism or discrimination, which definitely has existed in Myanmar and does currently still exist in some ways. But this argument doesn't say that all Burmans are racist or chauvinist or discriminatory. But it does recognize two important things. One is that inequalities in a society are institutionalized over time. And two, as the power holders and the beneficiaries in the majority group, Burmans are the ones in a position to dismantle this system of privilege and create a, a more equitable society. So I want to quickly go through five areas of Burman privilege that come back to conflict here. First of all is cultural dominance. 
Uh, a lot of scholars have described a process called Burmanization, in which non-Burman cultures are forced to adapt and adopt elements of Burman culture. Obviously, Burmans, being Burman, uh, are not subject to Burmanization or, or, and have never faced the need to change their culture in response to others. The second is unconditional membership in the national community. Since before independence, uh, national and, and military leaders in the country have been suspicious of non-Burmans, questioning their loyalty, wondering if they deserved citizenship, things like that. Obviously, Burmans have been the targets of political repression in the country over the decades, but in essence, Burmans start out as unquestioned, unproblematic citizens of the nation. They have to prove their disloyalty. Um, third is education. Right? Burmans grow up reading history books where they see members of their own ethnicity playing leading roles in the national narrative. Not only this, they do their education in their own native tongue. Of course, that benefits them. It's easier to learn, easier to develop skills, also easier than having your, your native language be the lingua franca, the language of power, also confers additional benefits in the political and economic spheres. The democratic opposition movement has generally represented Burman interests, um, and often minimized or deferred non-Burman concerns in favor of a kind of overall push towards democratic change, right? Deferring these ideas to say that, yes, we agree that equality and self-determination are important, but we'll fix all that once we get rid of this evil military government, right? And so as I've always kind of deferred uh, non-Burman concerns and complaints. And then finally, and, and most relevant, I think, to our discussion tonight, is the experiences of repression have been qualitatively different. The, the experiences of repression of non-Burman people, particularly living in border conflict areas, have been exhaustively documented. Um, and there are some forms of repression and violence that are experienced on an almost daily basis in some of these areas that haven't been experienced generally by Burmans. And generally, Burmans have also experienced qualitatively less repression. Now, this is not to minimize the suffering that Burmans have experienced, because many of them have been in jail for decades and things like this. But ironically, it seems to me that the fact that most people in Myanmar have experienced some degree of oppression under successive military governments, that fact actually contributes to Burman inability or unwillingness to acknowledge the differential suffering and the qualitatively greater suffering that non-Burmans have experienced. So it's hard for groups that consider themselves to be repressed to see themselves as relatively privileged. But my argument here is that it is absolutely essential for Burmans to recognize this and also to work against these institutionalized structures of privilege. Not only is it sort of necessary in a general equality uh, sense, but I do think that this constitutes one of the primary impediments to this goal of national reconciliation, right? that, that it all comes together in these ceasefires that you hear about and, and, and peace talks and, and talks about sort of real, meaningful political dialogue. Um, but this is going to have to happen on multiple levels, not just a sort of policy level, not just a military level, but also fundamental change um, from the people who exist in these institutions that are fundamentally uh, unequal right now. The final thing that I want to say here is that we also need to note the effects of geography in a place like Myanmar. So non-Burmans who live in larger, more diverse urban centers often have different experiences of their ethnicity than those in rural border areas. Right? And it's precisely because the former these diverse urban centers, are often spaces of integration, relative acceptance, relative peace on a daily basis, 
The latter are often active conflict zones. Right? So we need to recognize that this isn't just about identifying the Karen experience or the Mon experience. And actually what we'll hear today are some experiences of Mon people living in Mon state in conflict areas and, and an experience of a Mon person living in, in Rangoon as well. Um, so we have to be able to make a lot of space here for multiple narratives of ethnicity, identity, and conflict in Myanmar. And so, so I've identified sort of Burman privilege as, as what I think functions as a kind of national level dynamic. Um, but, but it is also important for us to recognize that localized versions of privilege exist within other groups, right? So they exist within armed groups and uh, it's been sort of well studied, the idea that the Karen National Union and the, and the Karen uh, sort of rebel groups, the Karen are not majority Christian, but the leadership of Karen identity groups are generally dominated by Christians. And, and Buddhists have talked a lot about their experiences of repression under, um, under the Karen as well. So it's important for us to recognize that there can be national levels of privilege. There can be localized structures of privilege as well. With that having been said, I want to now turn it over um, to Karen, who is going to talk about mom experiences here. Can
the experiences that I'm going to relate to you today aren't necessarily representative of all modern people everywhere. This is a relatively homogenous demographic. They're young, they work in human rights, and they've grown up in areas of modern state where the new modern state party are very active. So they typically have a very strong sense of ethnic identity, which shows up in the first thing that I wanted to highlight in the conversations I had with them recently, which was that they're, they're all very proud to be modern. One of them told me that his name translated in Mon as person who preserves the history of Mon. Uh, my Mon isn't sufficient to tell you whether or not that's entirely true, but I'll take his word for it. Um, another friend of mine said, I'm really proud to be Mon, even though we don't have our own kingdom or country. The world knows that the Mon used to have our own kingdom, language, culture, traditions. Later, Burmese kings destroyed our nation and we became slaves. But we, Mon, are still proud to be Mon. For me, to be Mon is a special opportunity and luck. Now, I think this idea of a special opportunity is very interesting in terms of what Matt's just been talking about, about Burman privilege. And this idea of pride and luck in being Mon is very deeply rooted in a sense of history and shared heritage that they have. There's a very strong idea of a bygone age where the Mon culture flourished and thrived. And this is something that they contrast with their reality today. And one of the key things that they experienced, in they identified in their experience of conflict, was a loss of their ethnic culture under repressive military dictatorship. Now, the New Mon State Party has had a ceasefire since 1995, almost continuously. So as the people that I was talking with are relatively young, they've had limited experience of living in an active conflict zone. So, their experiences of conflict that they talked to me about were maybe subtler than fighting and gunfire. They talked to me about how their native language was in decline as a result of the military government's policy of only Burmese being taught in schools. One friend said, I still remember that we were forced to put just the Burmese language in our brains since we were a child. Later, Mon people started to imitate the Burmese because those who could speak Burmese well got a better chance to approach officials and people in power. The Mon language and culture have almost disappeared since General Nayland's term. But most Mon people, including me, cannot read the Mon language has caused us to lose our nation. Most people, most Mon people became Burmese. And there's this interesting thought here that the repression of the Mon language wasn't just accomplished by force. The people began to speak Burmese and act Burmese because by doing so they were put instantly in a better position. And conversely, that by holding on to their Monness as they sometimes like to call it, they were put at a disadvantage. Another friend of mine said, when I went to high school, I could speak only a little Burmese. I had a big problem communicating with my school teachers. Fortunately, I passed all 10 grades. Now he's actually, he's done very well now. He's working as a journalist in Yangon. But the point here is that simply by being Mon and speaking Mon and not speaking Burmese, he started off at a disadvantage. Now, Moving on a little, I wanted to probe my friends a little bit about their political opinions. So I asked how they felt that the Mon people were positioned in view of the alleged current political transition. Um, one friend talked about an attack by the Burmese army that happened in August on a new Mon state party based in Tanasarim division. This infringed on the ceasefire briefly, and I think two Mon soldiers were killed in the process. And she talked about 
the government here is breaking its promise, and she said, I feel the Mon is still far away from real transition or reform. Another friend of mine, who's working inside Burma, made some comments about the new Mon State Party and Mon political party peace negotiations with the government. Um, it's quite a long quote that I'm going to read out to you here, but I think it contains some really interesting themes that I'm going to try and unpack a little bit. He said, now, everyone is following under the slogan of peace building and trust building. The Mon have some political tricks to make sure that conflict does not happen in their areas. That's why there are no more violent conflicts in Mon state. As a result, the Mon people are following the roadmap of Uteng Singh more than any other ethnic group. Mon political parties have few hardline politicians, and most of them are not wild like the Kachin and Karen. Concerning our rights, I don't feel that we are in a good situation. Maybe we have to push more for them than before. I'm still afraid that the special police will come to check on me in my office. Now there's two things I want to look at here. The first is the idea of slogans, of peace building, trust building, Utain Sein's roadmap, and the idea that the government are playing a very shrewd political game here with their slogans. And here's later comments, I think, suggest that this is some kind of facade, that the slogans are hiding something. He said later to me, um, Maybe after the Southeast Asian Games of Burma, we will hear the frightening sound of weapons in Mon State. And the second thing that I want to bring out, which is kind of related to this, is an underlying tension that I think is going on here. On the one hand, there's the idea that Mon leadership are complying with the government slogans, and this is a kind of political trick that they're using and they're keeping their people safe. And on the other hand, there's a sort of frustration that the Mon aren't putting up more of a fight. And he talks about the wild Kachin and Karen. And I don't want to focus too much on the word wild here, because I think it is probably a bit of a misnomer for someone for whom English is a second language, and he was very obligingly talking to me in English for my lack of Burmese. But I think the comparison here underlines the tension that I'm talking about, that the wild Kachin and Karen aren't falling in line which on the one hand, I think he feels is admirable, but on the other, he seems to feel that it's a factor in prolonging the conflict. And this tension sort of points to something that I saw in a lot of conversations I had over the last year, which was that Mon people didn't know how to feel, and they didn't know what attitude they should be re recommending, and they didn't know what they should be telling their leadership to recommend. Um, now, to finish, I'm actually <laughs> going to move away from that sense of uncertainty to the words of a friend of mine who was a little bit surer um, and thought that the Mon people should be taking a stand. He said, I find that our country has reformed, but it's not changed a lot in ethnic areas. Our Mon people need to work hard to bring about their own rights. The government will not give full rights to the ethnic groups unless our Mon work hard for it. Now I'm going to pass on to... Thank you, Karen. Um, um, Matt, can you? Uh, I actually missed that place more than I think you've seen the very first slide of what Karen just showed. It was it was actually the place where my mom's comes from. Um, before going into my talk, I actually want to share some of my feelings about. Um, the work that I'm doing with Obi right now. Um, if I were about if I were, if I were probably here about five years ago, 
I would never ever even touch this um, political cases because it's there is definitely a risk contained um, in what I'm doing related to um, considering that my families and my relatives are back there. But it is over the past two years, it's quite clear that um, there is some sort of opening that allow um, young people and those who are very interested, those who are very keen to um, voice their thoughts and experience from um, um, So I'd like to share my experience about being missed mom Barman in Burma. And what I'm going to be um, telling you will give you a rather interesting perspective because I'm actually responding to Matt, what Matt and Karen have just presented. I, although I'm a mom, missed mom barman, I enjoyed a lot of privileges that uh, Matt has just mentioned. And also kind of um, experienced some sort of conflict of experience that Karen just talked about on behalf of our colleagues and uh, friends. Um, because I'm raised, in, raised and grew up in Yangon, where majority of ethnic is Burman, I've been very well immersed in the community. And there hasn't been a time where I actually feel um, so discriminative because I'm on Burman, because I'm no longer seen as Mon Burman, but rather I'm seen as um, Burmese Burman, because that's how our parents were planned. Uh, making sure that their next generation is not really experiencing what they have experienced before. Um, and what you will hear from me is the stories of how Miss um, Morton Barman or other similar ethnicities have uh, deal with the kind of challenges to overcome and immerse into the community. Um, and if I have to justify the kind of decisions that I and those who are similar situation have made. It really was, it basically boils down to two reasons, um, education and economy. Um, let me start with uh, education. I was, I was raised in Yangon, and it's the only place for us or for any other people in Burma where you can get a proper education. And we're, we're not being ignorant about what's going on in ethnic borders or in other areas, it's just that we have um, no no um, information about whatsoever happening around our country, and we we don't we don't choose to live that way. But rather, it's the kind of institutionalization that the government has um, introduced. The in, so I have um, all my experience of conflict actually came from my parents because. They are the one actually who have seen and go, been through all these kind of um, uh, so-called experiences of conflict. Um, when I asked my mother what what kind of experiences she had in living in Monstay, she said, "It's clear that the Mon heritage's literature and um, their culture is dissolving, and because Burmese is the dominant language there." We can't really, they couldn't really be bothered with studying um, their Mon language or Mon culture because 
you can't make a living if you know the ethnic language. It's the, the official language is Burmese, and you have to, uh, in order for you to survive in the community, that's where you have to follow. Um, and the other <coughs> a very interesting thing that I've experienced is how the re religion connects the different ethnic minorities in Burma. Because there are more than 135 ethnic minorities in Burma. And for me, to me, because I'm Burman and because I'm Mon, the religion is really how um, keep hold both of the major um, majority of ethnic groups together. Although there are other, um, you may argue well about how um, other other conflicts and other experience might um, counter be very counterproductive to what I'm saying. Um, and over the over the past five decades, our Mon state has been very underdeveloped due to the infrastructure such as roads and railway were not in place. When my parents and their relatives want to study in the city, they have to uh, st struggle a lot with studying the language and also um, understanding the different culture, which is in Yangon, which is completely different from other ethnic areas around the border. And the one of the one of the most interesting experience for me, being on Burma, where I really where I really experienced conflict was when I deal with paperwork. When I was reapplying for citizenship and passports, it turns out that it was the kind of one of the most shocking experience for us and for also for our parents. Um, <coughs> there are, we heard, we heard, we all, we've already heard enough stories about how ethnic identity can get into your way when, when, you're, when you are trying to um, reapply for a citizen or when you're trying your paperwork going. And it was very dangerous for us in a way that my parents um, have to work out so that uh, when I go study abroad or when I have to travel, it doesn't get into my way. So similarly to other ethnic um, minorities and other people who were able to make their way out, they also have to figure out how they can um, make a living in, within the community inside Yangon and also Mandalay. And um, as I said earlier, um, economy is also the other thing which has daily direct impact to our daily life. When there are wars happening in Taiwan border or um, China Burma border, suddenly the whole market in Yangon is getting in chaos. The commodities prices rose over two hundred percent or more, and you and you will never know when things gonna. Be, uh, okay again because you even you don't even know whether it's a manipulation or whether there is actually the war is happening and we have to Yangon and I have to rely a lot on these border areas and and these because I was being I was raised in an area where the largest uh, market and trading happened in Yangon was very uh, dynamic and every single day you, you heard complaints from people and 
it's, it's being very sick of how government is introducing new policy all the time. Um, to compare with other suffering in ethnic for areas, it might not sound as severe as it is, but we've been very um, oppressed under our own problems as well. So young people like us, we have, we are, we just have to focus on education. That's all it matters for us. So that in a way, we, uh, the the future there, we've always thought that the there is no future in, inside Burma. Rather, we have to find a way out to uh, find better education outside. And um, and that's where I am here as well. Um, but I think that's pretty much I have to share right now. If you have any uh, questions about any other uh, about me, I'll leave that for Q and A's. I know that it has been a bit uh, scattering around, but um, the point is, it's very. We've been put in a way that it seems to be enjoying the privilege, but instead, it's uh, there's little choice that we have to move on. Since you have a minute or two left on your time, can I just invite you to actually kind of describe the process of applying for the card and having to reapply for your passport and how oh. what would have happened had, were you not successful in that process? Oh, right. Because I think that that's yeah. an important part of this. Um, it was it was it was the most interesting experience that I've ever had. Um, <laughs> so when I was eleven, it, I was told that. I was told by my parents that I have to reapply for my citizenship. I remember I was standing outside this office, and my parents walked in to the, um, and meet with a couple of government officials. And I don't know what they were talking about. All I can see is our parents panicking for a while. Because if, if there's any problem with my uh, paperwork, I can automatically get into the second tier class um, identity, which basically means you're, you're not a citizen for us, to us. And that will completely block my future. And what, it goes the same when I was 18 as well. We took a lot of time and um, effort, make sure that we're uh, speaking to the right person and we're managing, we're managing to get our, uh, get our problems solved. Um, that was... That was probably the, the time where ethnic identity means really a lot to me. And when I realized that I'm not, although I'm seen as Burman in the community, what it's really saying on the paperwork is something else. So, so I'll hand it over to Dan, who will be um, talking about his experience on Kachin. Mm. <coughs> Thank you, Pai, and thank you, Matthew, and Karen. Uh, first of all, let me introduce myself again. My name is Ndian Dan Kung Ong from Gachin State in Myanmar, and I am Charles Wallace Research Fellow here, and I'm about to go back home soon. And today, so having, having heard all the stories of the ethnic and even Burman people, Allow me to share the story of the people 
with different perspective. Let me give you three points. The first one is problems. The second one is people. And the final one is respect for peace in the country. In early 2012, it was in a van on the way from Yinjiang, a China city, to Lizer, the headquarters of the Kitchen Independence Organizations. The road was very sneaky, sneaky. And the old lady who was sitting, on, sitting behind me told me how her 17 years old little girls lost in the middle of nowhere in China. Six, seven months ago, when the war broke out, their family had to fled away from their village when the Myanmar government come and attack their village. And they, they, they had to take refuge in IDP camps in KO-controlled area. A couple months passed pass by, and then the old, the old woman's daughter told her, Mom, now our government is feeding us, <coughs> but we still need money for my brother's and sister's education. I heard that there is a job in Yinjiang, the China city, Yinjiang, in a nude shop. Allow me to go to Yinjiang. Then the lady permit her daughter. Until today, that, small, that young lady is still missing. Ladies and gentlemen, like that small lady, many young and many, many young boys and girls are being trafficked across the border. Boys, they have to walk in the unpaid, back-breaking walk while the ladies become baby-making machi baby machines or sets legs to a Chinese guy. So, besides that problems, many, many problems. So, who will solve this problem? Myanmar government? They are supposed to do it since they are the primary holder of responsibility to protect the citizens. But what happened, what happened in, on the ground is that despite of protecting people, looting, property destructions, sexual violence, extrajudicial killings are not uncommon committed by the Myanmar government army. So then, what about the international community? After six months of the break, uh, when the war broke out, international community, especially United Nations Agency, they are still struggling with the still struggling with code of conduct, humanitarian principle. They couldn't reach out to the people yet. At that time, the Kachin independent organizations or what the Myanmar government call Kachin rebels or insurgents. They form a com committee called IDP and Refugee Relief Committee and they fit and provide health and shelter, healthcare and shelter to displaced people. 
So you see, this is the area of the conflict, the Kachin State and Northern Chan State. And you may wonder who are the Kachins. You may wonder Kachins may come from one single parent. Maybe right, maybe wrong. But Kachins, I would say, Kachins are people comprised of people who speak different languages, but they share very similar culture and similar kinship system. And most of the Kachin live in Kachin State and Northern Shan State in Myanmar and the Daijing Hosu Autonomous Prefecture in Yunnan Province in China and Arunachal and Assam in India. So, but when we look at the history, there are no evidence that the Kachin land had been under the rule of any Burmese kings. And, but in the 1870s, when the American Baptist missionary wanted to go to uh, Kachin land for, 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 for missionary, he asked permissions from King Mingdong, then Burmese kings, to pass through the Burmese uh, Burma and to reach to the Kachin land. At that time, the, what the Kachin, uh, what the King Mingdong responded to that American Baptist missionary was that before you go and teach these Kachin people, first teach the dots in my court. And this photo was taken in 1925. When all, when uh, uh, these big groups of Gichin elders and leaders came down all the way from Gichin land to Rangoon, asking for home rule from the British governor. But what the British officials told them was, you're not ready to govern yourself. Forgetting the fact that Gichin has been governed by themselves for generations even before British came. Oh, all right. So, in the 1947, Kachin, Kachin joined with uh, Kachin and like Kachin joined the union. Kachin actually Kachin formed the union along with the Burman proper and Shan and Chin people. Again, in the night, and then they royal, they royal, they loyally protect the union. But after ten years, after ten years of independence, after the independence, a group of Gichin university students went to the UNU by then prime minister, and they asked for home rule again, autonomy, promised by General Aung San and promised in 1947 constitutions. But again. Unu, by then democratically elected prime minister, kicked him out of his office, saying that, oh, you little dogs, get out of my room. Little dogs again. So, not only that, Unu, by then democratically elected prime minister, transferred three large areas from Beijing State to China against the will of the people in Beijing State. Secondly, he also institutionalized Buddhism as state religions. The voice of Christian people fell on deaf ear, so they started their armed struggle in 1961. 
Now, today, people may call the government differently, but what the Gichin people call government, the official name is the government of the Republic of the Union of Myanmar. But in Gichin, what the people call them is Asoya, which is colonial government dictator government. Whereas they name Gichin rebels or insurgents as the government of the Republic of Gichinan. You may wonder why. Let's look at the structure of the, the government of the Republic of Vietnam. When people talk, when people are sharing the stories of rebellions, of fighting uh, conflict in the country, those who, who have AK-47s might be quite attractive. But this may be the different aspect, different perspective from the people in the land. So, not yet, please. So, you, you say that okay, un, under the KO, they have a two branch, not only defense branch, but also the civilian branch, such as Department of General Administrations and Department of Justice, and they also have, like, education and health department and foreign affairs, and you will see some special committee focused on women and some department on immigrations. All the departments, they run, they, they operate in different administrative units from village, village track, town, township, district to divisions. Now this, this map show you two different things. One, the, ins, the insignia of the military, Dumbledore, the government military army, you will say how they militarized the whole Gachin state and the whole, the whole country, uh, the northern part of the Myanmar. After 1994 ceasefire, Myanmar, gov Myanmar military government militarized the area. They made their presence everywhere. Whereas Gachin independent organizations spread out their civilian units, civilian administrative units. So you will say the Four, four major parts here. In the north, it is the first divisions, the northern divisions, not for the civilians' administrative divisions. North, west, center, east, and west. So the gray area in the, in the north become one of the northern divisions. So the, again, the next, next slide. This photo, you will see the headquarters of Liza. So you say, as many cities in the world, it has 24-hour electric city, and it has access to internet and telephone, and it has its own channel, like Liza TV, it has its own radio. And at the same time, people there, they can access to like BBCs, Al Jazeera's, something very much different from Michina, which is under the control of Myanmar government. Could you please? Uh, so, back to the previous, previous story that I mentioned earlier about the 17 years of little girl lost in the middle of nowhere in China. So to counter that kind of, to solve that kind of problem, the KIO, they, their immigration of, immigrations office, they issues national ID card, passport, which make people legally travel back and forth to China. China means like in within their special regions. So, uh, 
second and you also see the health department uh, working like they they provide healthcare and Medicare all across this area that I mentioned the or the administrative area under the control of KIO and this the the second photo you will see the operation theater and many non-gachin such as this doctor is from Shan ethnic ethnic group come and volunteer there so you you wonder you may wonder where they got the money to do that they got the money from tax tax taxing business inside kitchen steak and northern Shan state and they also have like special committee called narcotic drug eradication committee in the past it wasn't successful that much because of the hindrance from the Myanmar government but after the war started when the war resumed again the KIO's anti or narcotic drug eradication campaign become quite effective here for the law and order uh, for rule of law and they make sure that the police department take responsibility effectively and one point here, another thing I couldn't show the photos, and they, have a, they also have a court system. And they institutionalized a kind of jury system to provide justice to the people. Next slide, please. And for the long run, for, for, the, for the long term, KIO policymakers, they're mindful of the education policy. In the past, KIO education policy, behold, Maybe though or younger to the central government, but these two photos uh, above is taken uh, is very 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 recently in Lyser. It is the national Pol national education policy meeting. So many people, many leaders, many intellectuals all over the country come came there and discuss about the education policy, and the KO provide the education education services from preschool to preschool to college and the education department has a teachers training college to train teachers and then they send them to boot the KO control area to and the Myanmar government control area and the Lizer, the headquarters of the KO has been a place for regenerations of the kitchen literature and culture too and all the kitchen intellectuals, they find it as a refuge. Ladies and gentlemen, if I may have a time more, I can list many initiatives, initiatives by the people in kitchen state and the kitchen independent organizations, who people call, whom people call the government of kitchen life. The third point, it's a prospect of peace in the, in the country. People have been victimized for decades. But now people start seeing themselves as the ruler of the land so that they have to, so they don't need to feel themselves as victimized. But they have to face the challenges when they become the ruler of the land, such as like challenges such as like ethnic diversity, religion diversity. So, my conclusions, which is very much related to this conference, which is, which is taking place in Lyser, 
around 16 ethnic armed groups are convening there. So they're going to discuss with the government very soon about national nationwide ceasefire. Thereafter, they're going to demand the political dialogue which ensure, which incorporate equality and self-determination that all the non-Burman ethnic group has been demanding for decades. Finally, unless and until Myanmar government acknowledge equality and self-determinations in the political dialogue, the prospect of peace in Myanmar is very much unlikely. Thank you so much. Good. Well, I think we have a great deal of time for questions. And I, I think we'll probably, if, if people who are asking questions can just sort of state your questions loudly enough, we'll probably all be able to hear. So we'll keep the mic down here if any of the quiet speakers need them. Yeah, Abby. Um, actually, for Dan, I apologize for not having a background on Burma. But I didn't quite follow. So the government of Kachin Land, is it a legal, the legally recognized government, or is it like a pseudo-government underneath the Burmese state? All right. Thank you so much for that question. So should yeah, I? Go. Okay. That's your question. So, and the government, the, what government said is Kachin rebels, Kachin insurgents. And even the media said Kachin rebels. But people, people, inside the state call this organization as government of Kitchen Land. Yeah. So you, you can decide whether it is legal or not. Legal for the people, but not legal for the government of Myanmar. And, and there, are different, there are different arrangements, actually. So as the Burmese government has negotiated ceasefires and different sort of political, semi-political agreements over the years with different groups, um, some groups have different levels of autonomy. So, so the, the KIO is not the legally recognized, you know, government from the Burmese government's point of view. Obviously, has a great deal of legitimacy in the eyes of most Kachin people. But um, there's a, a specially administered zone for the Wa people, who actually two, right? I mean, there there are kind of two d different administered zones. So, some of the groups that have been more of a threat at any given time have been able to negotiate some differing degrees of. Autonomy, self-governance, things like that. So, so aside from, is it the, the KIO is providing a police force, education, health services? Is the Burmese government also providing those services, or they're only being provided by the KIO? Oh, in the kitchen stack, there are two areas. Uh, in generally, the KIO control area and Myanmar government control area. Yes, of course, Myanmar government could uh, provide education and healthcare system, uh, but. When it, can, what it comes to the comparison, let's, let's compare the 17 years of ceasefire. The government of Myanmar extracts natural resources, many natural resources, but they invest very little in infrastructure devel development and education and all the other services. And most of, this, most of the infrastructure we have in the state is most of them are from the British colonial period rather than a new one. But uh, kind of like there's a one specific bridge called Bala Mintin, Bamanai's name in the kitchen land. That is quite, yeah, that should be the one that they built. Uh, when it comes to uh, that point, 
You may wonder when you arrive in Michina, which is still under the control of Myanmar government, the electricity comes from the company owned by the Kachin Independent Organizations. When you go out of the Michina, the road that you, you have to travel is built by KO. And when, when you look around villages, the, the schools and hospital that you see are built by KO. And over the last 17 or 18 years, uh, can also, also subsidize students who get the IT training in Michina. So I, I wouldn't say there is no provisions, but compared to like, here they, 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 got a large, they extract a large amount of natural resources, but invest very little to the people. But here, yes, KO also extract natural resources and also tax and then they also provide services. Dan, thank you very much for your talk. I, I just wanted to ask a bit more about how you came to be in Oxford yourself and what you're going to be going back to. Okay. Uh, my organization is called Humanity Institute. So uh, today what I present is specific with the kitchen perspective, but my organizations deal with not only Kachin people, but also with other people, including Burman people. So the Humanity Institute works for human rights documentation and education in the past, and now we are aiming to set up the social science educations. So I'm leaving next week, and I'm going to invest my time to setting up uh, social science educations, so which I also invite you to, to join with us. How did you get here, John? Here, uh, so uh, Charles Waters Trust, they are very generous to fund, and the Oxford University, they are very kind enough to, very kind to accept me here. So that's why I'm here. So before I come, I have been rejected twice for, in the visa application, but finally, I'm finally here. Actually, it might be worth it to tell one of the reasons why you were rejected, not by the Myanmar government, but by the UK the, government, yes. but one of them was about language, right? Oh. The, 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 the hometown, the name of your town. Oh, okay. So the, the thing is that, uh, actually, I, I was born in Michina, the capital city of Kitchen State, but the pass, passport office, officers in Yango, they just named my birthplace as Yango. That become pro problematic every now and then. Not only this time, but also in, in, the, in, the, in the past when I tried to visit Singapore. And, and I think, I mean, I would just say I, I kind of look at something like that as not an intentional bias or not an intentional discrimination, but a, a sort of unconscious bias towards, you know, not necessarily recognizing where you come from or how to, how to attribute, you know, non-Burman people at, in there, but, but obviously something difficult that you then had to deal with. Thank you. Um, can I just add one more question in, in relation to catching uh, 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 presentation? Um, the uh, title of your presentation was from uh, victim, victimhood to victimized to self-determination. Self yes. Um, and you know, one realizes this conceals a great many more troubling. Uh, uh, subtext here. Indeed, as a matter of fact, that 
story with which you started your presentation of the old lady and what you call the missing uh, daughter. One imagines that the trafficked yes. uh, uh, daughter actually raises quite a number of issues simply in the way that you told the story in outline, you know, but also your reference to women. You know, facing the option of backbreaking, breaking work, being you know used as uh, sort of reproduction, or, or I think the term you use for sex slaves to Chinese, yeah, um, yeah, men. I would like you to tell me a little bit more about the uh, giving me a less optimistic, perhaps, um, understanding of vulnerabilities. Of issues to do with um, uh, the uh, with women's situations, women's predicaments, such as that young woman, and the involvement of China and the presence of China in Kachin, in uh, the uh, perhaps well the trafficking uh, of women, but also associated criminal uh, activities. So. Thank you so much for the questions. When it comes, yeah, when it comes to the title with self, uh, the victimized to self-determined community, and people has been blaming the central government for not doing this and that for decades, decades. And it doesn't have any fruit, any fruitions, we can see. But now people start demonstrating practicing the self-determinations by themselves. When it comes to the human trafficking, human trafficking, that, that problem also exists in several countries all around the world, including the United States. So, how we solve the problem is also how, uh, also depends on how we understand the problems. In the Kachin, and, uh, in the Kachin case in particular, we do have kind of like Pushing factor and pulling factors. Pushing factors are like inside, yeah, that I already mentioned in the story that they've been, they have to fled away from their villages, original villages. They have to survive their life in IDP camps by the support of the IKO and other humanitarian. And the, the pulling factor is kind of the salary, the wages they can get in China is relatively much higher. So in that case, this human, human trafficking issue become a... If I can go deeper, the problem is very complicated. But in the absence of any defender to those ladies, those girls, these problems can be worse. But the actors on the ground, the, the local people, they initiate to intervene in this, this problem. I'm not... Very I'm not saying that I'm very optimistic with what the KO is doing right now. There's a the human right, uh, human trafficking is the trans transborder issue. So that lady is that. That's why I choose this story at the beginning. This the lady is still missing. But the KO foreign foreign department, they had a success success story of bringing back the boys and girls who been trafficked in the past. But this particular lady is still missing. And the Kachin Women Association, with this one of the special committee in KO, 
they all, they provide uh, they they provide awareness pro awareness the education program to both IDPs and villagers, and then they also provide alternative livelihood to the girls who return back from China. Ben, can I just ask you a question related to that? Um, so from my experience, um, the new Mon State Party, which I think is similar to the KIO in terms of its main Mon armed group, and from my experience in new Mon State Party leadership, they're all men. Um, what, I mean, to me that raises some interesting questions in terms of, of self-determination, because when trying to solve these difficult complex issues, the potentially the responses are being influenced or shaped by male leadership. And I was just I was wondering what the situation is for the KIA. In terms of how represented women are in leadership positions and whether KIO self determination is KIO well, so uh, really good questions. That's the Kitchen Women. Kitchen Women groups has been trying again and again, and then they project themselves that they can also be leaders. Yes, uh, among the Kitchen Independence Organization leaders, you can see almost no women. Yes, that I that I agree. Uh, that I that I would say. But there is no restriction to the ladies to take part in the, that process. Uh, now today, many leaders, uh, I, I, will, I will come back to no restrictions. And these days, many young ladies and the middle-aged ladies, they involved in different aspects of the decision-making, both in the public setting uh, public, in the public conference or both inside a care or decision-making process. Yes, we will see no, almost no women in the committee meetings. You still have, have one in the central committee. Yeah, almost no, almost no, almost none. So it, it is very much thing to do with the women empowerment. That's the uh, area, the huge gap that we, the care or still have. sort of addressed to all of you. Um, I was curious to hear that the KIO issued passports, um, which presumably for them to work, the Chinese must somehow recognise. And uh, I'm therefore interested in how the Chinese and then the Thai people along the one border, um, uh, how they interact with these ethnic communities. Um, badly would be my response. Um, yeah, I... I mean, the people that I work with on the area of the Thai Burma border I was on, they sort of had varying status of ID and legitimacy, like legality of being in Thailand. So some would be on student visas, say, and they'd have they'd be treated generally quite well. Some um, some with basically no identification would be treated terribly. They'd, I mean, on the border, you, when you're traveling anywhere, you go through a lot of checkpoints. And if you don't have ID, or sometimes even if you do have some ID, you're liable to pay fines for women, sexual intimidation, sexual assault. Um, 
and tied into that, if you're a woman, a migrant woman, with little or no ID, if you report a sexual assault, you're not going to get hurt. Um, so that would be my response badly. Oh, okay. Thank you. Uh, when it comes to the Kachin, and geographically, Kachin State is quite far away from Thai border, but I would, uh, but there's a one particular village. Uh, the royal government and the king of Thai, Thailand king uh, recognized the one particular village in Thailand as a kitchen village, but it doesn't have much interactions across the border. But when it comes to China, yes, the the, the same thing happened in the past. The same kind of like intimidations and. The passport is quite recent, and beside passport, they also have a like motor vehicle license. The those who register in Lizer, they can also travel. To they, they can also travel the, the right to the China territory, and not only not only the individuals but also their vehicles. So, your questions. So, so basically, the, the Chinese it sounds like. It recognize um, the KIO passport um, and recognize the Kachin. Oh, uh, right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You, you asked one really wonderful question. And the thing is, you know, the border of the current border, the current geographic border, has been made by the British and the majority Burman groups and China, not Kachin. We have been in the in those area since time immemorial when the when the border demarcations was confirmed and set up suddenly a kitchen family realized that their toilets their toilet is in the other side of the border where their home is in the, in, in kitchen state so so actually the china chinese government should have been recognized long, long ago. So, but they do recognize it. Now. Well, yes, so I, I, yeah, and I, I would say that actually, um, there, there are a couple of different things going on there. If I, yes. if I may jump in, I mean, I think that that border relationships, right, and particularly kind of legal and political relationships, and 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 passage across borders, are <coughs> sometimes a world unto their own, very separate from kind of national. Governments and what we see a, a lot uh, of what happens in China in relation to Myanmar is that you have the sort of Beijing attitude, right, and the the sort of official Beijing sort of connections, and then you have Yunnan government on the border uh, having its own sort of state levelish kind of regional level connections, and then if you go even further, you have sort of local authorities even closer to the border who have their own kind of uh, connections, and so. <clears throat> I don't know. I would be very surprised, actually, if the KIO had an official sort of recognition from Beijing that the Chinese government was going to accept these these passports as much as relationships with all of the officials on the border to kind of let that happen. I don't. I don't yeah, know. Actually, this is uh, one of the problem-solving tactic for both government actually, and. So without passport, without legal documents, people, right, the, the girls, boys, they can easily be, they are very vulnerable. For example, like since they don't have legal 
they can they cannot legally stay in China, then they can easily be victimized by the Chinese businessmen. So and that be, become a kind of like mutual mutual things. But uh, at this the is kind Chinese of like, state level, does uh, the Chinese state government province level? Actually, you should okay, think. Pro- right. yeah, province so level or yeah. like Dai Jingposu Autonomous Prefecture in Yunnan Province. So China, uh, China's are quite decentralized in that sense, but don't don't uh, don't get it wrong. Uh, that China support KO. Actually, we shouldn't say it because this is just a problem-solving tactic. But back in the back. Yeah, well, so so over the years, I mean, since even, well, right around independence, um, actually the first set of rebellions that broke out in Burma even before independence were um, ideological communist rebellions. Um, and, and so uh, there's, there's, I think, always been a really fraught relationship between the, the, the Burmese central government and, and the Chinese government, at least since 1949, you know, when, when the Chinese government has often been supporting communist groups um, in the country. And, and the, those sort of ideolo- ideology and ethnic rebellion have often kind of mingled together. And so that, you know, that the Chinese government has at times been officially and not officially supporting various sort of rebellions on the borders. Um, and that's a relationship that I think the Burmese government has always, uh, it, it's been one of their biggest challenges to kind of manage that, right? Because one of the fears, uh, particularly after 1949, was not necessarily of, of communist insurgencies, but it was having KMT uh, troops that had fled out because they were worried that China was going to come down and, and, and take over more territory. So the thing that I would say is, I, you know, China is very keen to get a port um, down in sort of western Myanmar, and I think, and that's clearly happening and, and sort of moving along on a daily basis. But I don't really think that it's going to be a significant sort of naval port. I, I, I think that that there's always been strong resistance to that. We've heard rumors for years about you know spying listening stations, Chinese listening stations on on you know Burmese islands close to India, and there's never been any proof that that's been the case. And I think that that. There's always been close military relationships between the two, but I think the Burmese are, are, are happy to have these economic ties coming through and these economic opportunities, um, but definitely going to be wary about, about sort of kind of a military engagement or a military port, if that answers your question. Mm. So with the Kachin Independent Organizations, and they stood there on the struggle in 1961 to, to fight against the 
the the Burmese government. But not long before, not long after there, they start on the struggle. They discovered themselves. They find themselves. Oh, they are fighting two front war, one with the Burmese army and one with the communist army. Because the communist, the Chinese communist army or Burmese communist party, they forced all other ethnic armed groups to come under the umbrella of communist party. But the, the leaders from Christian independence organizations, predominantly Christians, they reject it. Then they have to take the consequences, fighting two-front war at the beginning of, of the struggle. No, please, go ahead. Yes, I'd like to ask you, Pine, yeah. for his experience. So, so I'm, I'm original from Burma, so oh, yeah. I'm, I went to study in Yangon University in 1993. Um, but my experience, well, when I went to university, and then a lot of my friends from Yangon, mm-hmm. uh, they seem to struggle to distinguish between Qin and Qin. Do you have that sort of kind of like knowledge? Um, but you know, you clearly understand about who is the Qin, who is the Qin. Yeah, un- unless I saw the name, I I can't distinguish whether it's Qin or Qin. But there are some people who have clear uh, features: the skin color, the skin tone. I- I'm I'm rather seen as sometimes seen as Chinese in my community, but um, there in the university environment. It's more Burmese dominant, and um, sometimes because it's outstanding that there's only one a chin or a chin, and we can distinguish in that particular manner. Uh, it, it didn't happen during the high school or during my second year because in Yangon it's more or less uh, Burman dominant. The reason I'm asking is because the, when we went to school, we even you know I can say what a Burmese king name by heart, you know. I can see a Mesa Dongchi, you know, right. the uh, very famous, very famous Dongchi provost and stuff. But I was really disappointed that my friends who were Burmese, when I say I'm from Kachin, and I'm Kachin, and then they said, oh, you are Qin. So they couldn't really distinguish between the Kachin and Qin. So I think it's the that, that, you know, yeah. that's my experience. It's, it's so, true. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. true that we can't really distinguish between any other minorities around our country. And it's, it's kind of really embarrassing sometimes when you talk to these kind of friends and you saw, oh, this is, wait a minute, did I met Kachin or Chin or did I met Chin? Um, yeah, we have little knowledge about these kind of uh, ethnic diversity within our school as well. I think that's, that's a, that has to be changed. Yeah. I mean, my, my question follows on directly from that, in fact. In fact, you stole my thunder. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it's a great question for you, Pang, uh, because it, you stressed in your, in your very interesting uh, um, presentation that education is very important to you. And you, you yeah. also stressed at the end, you said ethnic uh, identity means a lot to me. And I was just interested, you know, with those two things, ethnic identity... And, and the education that you value so much, you know, what is the nature of that education and how can it respond to your ethnic, your non-ethnic identity? Um, um, and, and, and that equally is a question, I think, for Dan, yeah. before you go to sleep, Dan. 
It's um, <laughs> a question for you as well, because you referred to uh, catching uh, emphasis on education and the way in which the political uh, movement is funding and, and providing schooling for, for uh, catching people. So there's obviously a strong association between political organisation and, and uh, the provision of education there. But the question, the question Pro is. Sorry, Craig. Oh, yeah. I think that's that's a really um, that really hit the point. Um, the the moment I realized about being missing more in mind is when I visited there and I realized that I'm wrong seen as a a Burman Burmese rather than more Burman uh, misidentity. And I've also experienced a lot of um, the differences where if I can't speak more, I mean, that I'm basically not in more at all. And the literature is already gone. The culture is gone. The literature is gone there. It's very far underdeveloped. Um, lucky that because it's uh, the Mon is situated between Yangon and Thai Burma border, because the trade is happening there, so it somehow sustained the community and is there are something flourishing to say there. But in terms of the education that the Hmong people are having, if you want to study Hmong, you have to go to monasteries and you have to uh, find those who are really uh, passing on these verbally, either verbally or either through internet, something like that. But it's really a sad situation that I face here. The, the community itself trying to sustain the best. But unless... Um, there is some investment there. It can't sustain for over another 20 or 40, 20 to 30 years. It will clearly disappear. And because, I, because the, the community itself accepts these kind of mis-ethnicity uh, because they understand that it's not just them, it's the next generation that they have to um, um, see it in a visionary way if you like. Um, I mean, to me, it's... So these kind of mis-ethnic um, groups, if they can, they, they... I mean, I would say they have the responsibility to somehow interact and somehow connect bridge between these kind of communities. Over the last four years, I visited to two museums, one in Munstake, and one in Kitchen State. The one in Mon State, when I visit, I know, I knew that Mon culture and civilization has been there even before Burman civilizations appeared. So, but when I visit Mon Culture Museum, I could find not many things. Many cultural artifacts have been transported to Yangon, now in Navidor, and when I visit there, and in the moon sections, I could hardly find, I could see some small sections. But in the Burman sections, they, they grab all the moon culture there, show, show off as a Burmese culture, Burman culture. And again, with the museum in, culture museum in Gachin State, I found that Gachin textiles and the picture of that, how Gachin's cultivate as a statue and bond, 
and some kachins fishing net. Whereas they also show off like how great is the Burman civilizations, how great is the Burman kingdom, they show off in the Kachin Culture Museum. So when it comes to education, museum is a kind of education center where the, for decades the Myanmar government, this time I would, I would have to say them, that they have been planting a kind of sense of inferiority to the ethnic people, ethnic groups. And again, at the same time, let me also highlight the, the using of minority. And not just Burmese people, Burmese people use it, but also many intellectuals in the world use the word minority. I would say I'm not a Chin minority. He would say I'm not Moon minority. We would never use minority. So, Swen, so I'm sure you're quite aware of the Convention for the Rights of Minority and Convention for the Rights of Indigenous People. So when it comes to the house, a house may be inhabited by 100 people, but only one owners. So it comes to that sense. We are small in number, but we are not minority in the country. We can claim the self-determinations, which is legally binded in the international conventions. Can, can you also, and I, I, I want to maybe sort of rephrase this question, maybe getting at, at one thing that you're interested in. I mean, it's clear that, that sort of the Burman educational system teaches Burman history and, and only occasionally non-Burmans as, you know, adjuncts to that, to that history. And, and there are few opportunities to learn about non-Burman culture. You would have to seek it out through your friends, things like that. Um, but I, I think maybe you're also asking if... If ethnicity and identity and, and self-determination, these things are important to the Kachin, how are these issues dealt with in the KIO's educational curricula? Is that a fair? Okay, all right. <laughs> okay, so... No, this is you. Oh, how does the KIO do this? How so does the Kachin... Yeah. The moon, but before I go back to KIO, let me... Let me moon, uh, moon's organizations is has a very remarkable story of regenerations of moon culture and literature. And they, in their control area, they set up schools where the kids, kids can learn moon literature. That's a, one of the case studies that we Yigichin also learn from moon people. So I'm not boosting around the only Yigichin people because here, many ethnic undergroups. In each of them, each of these under groups, each of these ethnic groups have comparative advantage that we can synergize the synergize the energies. And when it comes to Kachin independent organizations and their education policy, like I mentioned in the in the past, they have to behold Nebido and Yango when they they have they plan for their curriculum. Yes, from from first from First standard from level one to until level ten, they use the same curriculum. They used to, they use the same curriculum as that of uh, in the typical Burmese schools, except the Kachin language textbook, Kachin language textbook, which is widely used in the Kachin uh, KO control area. And right now, the parliament parliament uh, make it possible that. Use of use of uh, ethnic language in the schools in, in the in, in the government controlled schools, 
but which is quite different. The one in the, the one in the government control school is something like Burmese poem and written in Burmese concept, translated to the ethnic language, not just originally come from the indigenous people. So that's a kind of like idea. Good. So I, I do you want to jump yeah, in? Yeah, no, I was just going to elaborate a little bit on what Dan said about the Mon. So a lot of my friends who are Mon and who actually speak Mon, or actually a lot of them will speak Mon, but they won't write Mon. That's the rarer thing. And a lot of them will have learned it. They have summer schools. I'm not. I can't say exactly who they run by. I know they're often affiliated to monasteries. Um, I think there's some acronym that's fled from my mind. There's a mon literary no, um, but yeah, just to just to elaborate on that, that they have a strong, they do have this strong sense of trying to teach their children their culture outside the parameters of the school system. Well, one of the challenges. That, that I think you, you're, you're probably also familiar with it, is that you know you get this this very Burman centric Burman curriculum in most of the country, and then in the past when non Burman groups have created their own curriculums, it's been kind of the opposite a sort of you know let's tell everything reactionary tell everything bad about the Burmans and and, and there are some groups cr- trying to create curriculum that acknowledges some of those complaints and some of those those concerns, but tries to sort of move forward and, and create a, a curriculum that that would make space for learning and valuing actually these, these kinds of things, these sort of histories that you don't have a chance to do. So I want to apologize because we're uh, pretty much out of time and we need to make sure we get out of here so that the porters can lock up the building here. Um, <laughs> thank you all very much for coming in. And I hope that, that what we've tried to put together here, you know, you're probably all familiar with the news stories, whether they're about the, the laudatory about the democratic transition or the conflict that we all know is happening. And, and I hope that we've, you know, sort of added to the complexity of these issues of identity and conflict um, in the country. Thank you very much.